Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, in the first Little Atoms of 2015, cultural theorist Ken Hollins talks about his new book, The Bright Labyrinth, Sex, Death and Design in the Digital Regime. Ken Hollings is a writer, broadcaster, cultural theorist and lecturer based in London. He is the author of the books Destroy All Monsters and Welcome to Mars, and his work has appeared in numerous journals and anthologies, and he's written and presented for BBC Radio 3 and Radio 4, NPS in Holland, ABC Australia and our own Resonance 104.4 FM. And um, we're going to be talking about Ken's new book, which is The Bright Labyrinth, Sex, Death and Design in the Digital Regime. So, Ken, thank you very much for joining me today. Hello, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. The first thing I want to say, I want to talk about the structure of this book. You've done an interesting thing, which will become self-explanatory when you talk about it, but I decided in my reading, perhaps against my better judgment, to follow this interesting pattern, which... For a book called The Bright Labyrinth, really worked, but perhaps wasn't the best thing to do if I wanted to uh, to present a sort of coherent narrative structure to an interview. So um, tell us about the interesting structure of this book. Certainly. The book is composed on various levels, and the most fundamental one is that there is a series of 120 numbered sequences, freestanding sequences, which in turn are made up of freestanding paragraphs. So there's 120 sequences. These are distributed across 10 individual chapters, with the result that you can either read the book in a straightforward linear manner, you can just read the book from one end to the other as a series of 10 chapters, you can read the chapters separately because they all deal with different individual themes, or if you're feeling bold, you can follow a number system which appears in the margin, which is there to connect up names or concepts or events which are distributed, shall we say, more thinly throughout the book. So a case in point would be if there is a reference to Thomas Edison uh, near the beginning of the book, say section 17 or 18, but he isn't mentioned again until much later in the book, you'll find a number next to his name. This will send you to the section or sequence where he's next mentioned. So this way you can actually follow a name or a concept or a place through the book. 
And, of course, this creates a kind of uh, multiplication of numbers in the margin. Someone said it actually looks like a sort of concordance for the Bible uh, because you have these little little cryptic uh, series of sequences of numbers in the margin. And if you wish, you can jump tracks, you can follow Edison to one point and then find something in that section that interests you that would maybe take you back through the book again. If you get completely lost, because it doesn't, it, each number doesn't represent every single mention, it just mentions the next significant one mm-hmm. in the next chapter, you can use the index, which has been put together in such a way that it, it works as a conventional index, but also you will notice that some of the numbers have been italicised, and this indicates that that particular reference is a numbered one that will send you out into the book again. I mean, I must admit, I went into this thinking, oh, this will be a lark. It's like a sort of cultural studies, choose your own adventure or something. And then, of course, when I was you know, halfway through thinking, well, this book's never going to end. You've written a, no- a never-ending book. And then did I realise, oh, so yes, of course, this is a, a literary version of a labyrinth, isn't it? It is indeed. And I feel if you, if you thought the book was going to go on forever and you felt, last, my work here is done. <laughs> So, okay, let's talk about and the subtitle. I said the bright labyrinth, sex, death, and design in the digital regime. Um, before we talk about what the meaning of the bright labyrinth is, it's a book about the the rise of you know what we might call the digital age. But you describe it as a digital regime. So why? What's the difference? Well, for me, the, the, I chose the term digital regime because the the kind of people I was discussing uh, this process with usually referred to digital culture, and I felt that the word digital culture was not strong enough. It, mm-hmm. it didn't convey... Oh, it's almost neutral. It is almost neutral. It it also invites you to see digital design and digital platforms as being somehow a cultural byproduct. In other words, you know, you can go to the Barbican, you can go to the V&A or Tate Liverpool, where it might be, and see some really interesting interactive Mm -hmm. work. But there's more going on. One of the really great analogies that I discovered through reading McLuhan, and he in turn got it from the uh, literary critic I.A. Richards, Richards spoke about, when he was lecturing at Cambridge in the 30s, he spoke about, he said, when you analyse a poem, all the beautiful language, all the, all the harmonies, not the rhythm, the metre, the beautiful imagery, whatever it might be, these are, and this is his uh, analogy, these are the piece of meat that the burglar uses to distract the guard dog while the burglar gets on with what he's there to do. So in other words, the actual meaning of the poem is the effect it has on you, the way in which it alters the way you look at things. It's not about the beautiful poetry. In the same way, McLuhan was arguing in the 60s, while well, everyone's going, oh gosh, wow, isn't television and video amazing, and all these you know, great electronic equipment that suddenly seems to have come into being. Mm -hmm. He's saying, yes, you can be distracted by all of that, but electronic media are actually having a completely different effect to you, which is not related to these distracting displays. So, in a sense, I'm, I'm trying to be a bit astringent by saying, let's look at a digital regime, something that doesn't just affect cultural production, but the distribution of that product, its legality, uh, its copyright issues, the distribution of money, the shifts that are taking place in law and freedom of expression, etc. There's a revolution going on, but revolutions tend to end in regimes. So I wanted to sort of start looking at it from this point of view of saying, you know, what, what is this regime that we are inhabiting? So why the bright labyrinth? I was very struck by a passage in um, Metamorphoses by the Roman poet Ovid. This is an amazing book. I recommend it to anybody to read. I think if you ever get stuck for inspiration, go and dig out Metamorphoses by Ovid. It's an attempt to catalogue and explain every single transformation that takes place in Greek myths. 
So it's how people become animals, how gods become stars, how animals become humans, etc. And one of the really fascinating passages, one that I got really quite obsessed with, is the description of the first labyrinth at uh, Knossos, mm-hmm. which is created by King Minos in order to hide away the shame of his household, which is this part man, part bull monster, which has been created while he's away fighting wars somewhere and his because his wife's had sex with a bull his wife has had well she's not just had sex with a bull she's had she's had sex with the god apollo disguised as a, in the form of a beautiful white bull so shame upon the house of of uh, of minos the labyrinth is created by this fascinating individual daedalus who is the first engineer of recorded history if you will in fact daedalus was also responsible for developing the harness which allowed minos's queen to have intercourse with Apollo as the bull in the first mm-hmm. place. So, you know, that was his first engineering problem, was this coupling. And then his second problem was creating something that would hide and contain this creature, this monster. And there's a really wonderful description about how he, he describes how the, the passages of the labyrinth sort of double back on themselves and, and lead into blind corners and alleyways. And he describes it as being like the, the river meander, the way it seems to go move backwards and forwards. So it creates illusions of movement where there isn't any necessarily. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence, the labyrinth itself is, I, I describe it as a redistribution of walls in space. There's no doorway, there's no gateway, there's no lock. And this seemed to be a very potent image for the kind of trans how can i put it tra- almost transportation system that mm-hmm. we inhabit today i almost wanted to say communication but it's slightly more complex than that i was very struck by this slogan that microsoft used for their first big global campaign back in the 90s and they came out with this phrase where do you want to go today i thought it was i mean whoever thought of that was just on a roll there. It's such a genius idea. You're selling a a workstation, essentially. You're selling software. And you're not saying, what do you want to do today? Because that could be fun, but it could be work. You know, Mm -hmm. either way, you're actually required to, you know, do something. Where do you want to go today? It suddenly opens up a completely new dimension. It's the computer as a magic carpet. It's the idea of this sort of unfettered, untrammeled Mm -hmm. exploration. You can be anywhere without leaving your desk. And I thought that image, that metaphor of where do you want to go today, really fits the labyrinth in the sense that when we pass through airports or hotel lobbies or we go to... Canary Wharf, wherever it might be, we have this illusion of of space, we have this illusion of access, but it is only an illusion. I'm Jeff Dyer, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Well, I was going to come on to that a bit later on, but let's, we may as well do it now. In the first chapter of the book, which is called Welcome to the Labyrinth, you actually concentrate on the word welcome, this idea of all the different types of welcomes that you see, and that may be welcome when you're going online, or, as you just said, at airports, or these sort of artificial spaces of n- non-places. So what do you sort of excavate that idea of the welcome a bit? Well, you, for one thing, you can actually trace entire journeys through the welcome, and it, it can be something as simple as welcome to London Transport, welcome to London and Heathrow Terminal 4, welcome to Lufthansa flight to Berlin, welcome to the Ramada Inn in Berlin, welcome to uh, CNN, welcome to the local Wi-Fi network, etc. They're always a series of welcomes, and there's, it's something that we take for granted. It's such a simple little ritual that we barely notice it, mm-hmm. but it's, it turns up in all cultures. Uh, I, had a, I remember a friend of mine telling me that he once went backpacking in Malaysia, and he, would, he, he tried to learn a little bit of, of local language, so he could, he could talk to people that he met, and he'd come 
come to sort of little villages or small towns and he'd walk in and people would stare at him and he would use what he thought was the local word for welcome and he'd be going welcome welcome what? no sorry he thought he was saying hello and they were all starting laughing at him and he realized actually he was saying welcome so it was as if he was actually welcoming them to their own village their own town so that's why they were laughing so you know that's how much we take it for granted this little gesture it's it's also a way of acknowledging someone's traveled a distance mm-hmm. it's a way of saying i acknowledge the fact that you have come to me and i welcome you you are you know you are you can come here but at the same time if you turn it around it's the reverse face of security because welcome also means you've got the right code you've got the right access you've got the right passport you know so all those transparent spaces that make up an airport for example where you get this tremendous sense of space one of the reasons why the illusion is perpetuated is because you've passed through all these different screening processes mm-hmm. you know you've been padded down you've gone through the metal detector which is a which is a kind of gateless gate if you will mm-hmm. your passport has been scanned and so you're constantly given this sense of as it were controlled liberty but at the same time architecturally you're given this sense of space and that seemed to correspond to me exactly to the first labyrinth uh, and that's why i called it a bright labyrinth because mm-hmm. i thought you know the mental picture one has of of the minotaur's labyrinth is somewhere dark yeah. and subterranean and you know we're not lucky enough to be able to identify labyrinths so easily mm-hmm. you know they're not strange coal mines of the unconscious uh, the labyrinth that we inhabit and it's probably the hardest one to exit or find your way out of is the labyrinth we don't know we're in you know this is what i find fascinating that we are actually quite complicit in this flow of data bodies information money whatever it might be we mm. we kind of just go with it and and i don't think we're fully aware of just how regulated it is and how how carefully streamed and controlled you just mentioned you know ovid and another person another name from not quite as far in the past but you know, still in the past that overshadows all of this book is nietzsche Mm. And I wanted to know why, and I guess wider than that, why why can so, you know somebody who who was dead a long time before the, the sort of digital regime was was conceived can tell us so much about it? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. I think from my perspective, I got more and more interested in how we could examine precedent in order to understand what's happening today because Mm. the problem i think with writing about books on digital technology artificial intelligence robotics the legality of social networks etc is that they are more or less obsolete before they hit the shelf um they're constantly being outstripped by events so i i deliberately decided to as it were see the future in terms of the long shadows cast from the past you know in in welcome to mars i write that the future started a long time ago and so it's a continuation of that drift nietzsche i think is i identify him as my companion in the beginning of the book. Uh, he himself was obsessed with the labyrinth. Mm-hmm. He spoke about labyrinthine man. In, in his madness, you know, he would refer to Cosima Wagner as his Ariadne. But more tellingly still, he comes up with this amazing observation in Daybreak. And it's one of those, again, it's one of those phrases that just stayed with me and it sort of rolled around in my, in my mind when I was writing the book. And it's why I've put it right at the very beginning of The Bright Labyrinth. And he says something to the effect of, if we were to create an architecture which was to reflect the nature of our own souls, and then adds in brackets, we are too cowardly for that. That architecture would be the labyrinth. It was just such a perfect Mm -hmm. connection between the complexity of our inner nature and the corresponding complexity of the labyrinth. The other reason why Nietzsche is, I think, particularly relevant is because, A, he was peripatetic, he was a wandering 
philosopher. Uh, he, he never settled in any one place for very long. Mm -hmm. So I felt that someone who was constantly in motion should be my companion in the labyrinth. And also because he was one of the first philosophers to acknowledge the importance of technology. He referred to himself as the first mechanised philosopher. A big moment for him was when he got his first typewriter. At this point, he's beginning to lose his, his sight. The machine that he uses is, is the Maling Hansen writing ball, which has become quite famous. It was designed by a Danish engineer, and it was for it was in order to enable blind people to write to mm -hmm. the sighted. And so you have a ball with these kind of keys up high above it, and the platen where the paper goes is actually underneath the ball. Mm -hmm. You don't need to see it because you can't see anyway. Mm -hmm. And this is the machine that Nietzsche was using. And he says, you know, he's, he's, he's fascinated by this machine. He says it's, a, it's, it's neither a tool nor an instrument, but something in between. And it's in a letter to uh, someone where he's just getting used to this typewriter. And he comes up with this phrase, which I think is, is so important. He says, our writing instruments also work on our thought. Mm -hmm. So he's the first person to realise that how we write, the way in which we set down our thoughts, the way in which we communicate them, actually influences the shaping and the development of those thoughts themselves, which is very, very far in advance mm -hmm. of its time. I mean, this is a philosopher who is already preoccupied with the fragility, the uncertainty of philosophical framing. You know, that there is no absolute truth, there is no ideal truth. Mm -hmm. You know, the, 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 the ground that we assume beneath our feet is constantly shifting all kinds of psychological, cultural, social factors, small jealousies and petty resentments can produce quite complex and elevated philosophical ideas, but that's nonetheless, that's where they've come from, that's part of that process. In the same way, the process of hammering out an idea on a typewriter where you can't actually see the paper underneath it. And also he was using it in spring in Italy and that, that spring was particularly humid. So, you know, the, the keys were sticking and the ink was going everywhere. So it, it must have been an amazingly frustrating experience. But out of that, he suddenly realised, yes, how we set down our ideas mm -hmm. shapes those ideas. Mm -hmm. So he seemed to be the, the ideal companion. Plus, I think that in these... You know, as we as we sort of tiptoe into the 21st century, and I do still feel like we're tiptoeing, mm -hmm. even even 15 years in, <laughs> it's rather nice to be accompanied by a 19th century thinker. You know, where, where they had a certain boldness and a certain a certain stride to them. You know, whether it, whether it's Nietzsche or Marx or Freud, mm -hmm. uh, I chose my man. I'm I'm happy with my companion. Listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to Ken Hollings, and we're talking about his book, The Bright Labyrinth Sex, Death, and Design in the Digital Regime. And Ken, we're going to take a peripatetic walk through the uh, some of the themes contained in the book in a moment. I said a peripatetic walk probably reflected on, on the way that I actually consume the book myself and um, but before we do one other more general question which is the book is I mean you describe it not as a history of technology but as 
a history of how technology impacts human culture. What's the difference between those two things? I think that there is a tendency or there is a temptation when we speak about a history of technology to write about technology as if it is somehow separate from us. That technology is this recorder, Mm -hmm. this desk, uh, telephones, lamps, television sets, videos, smartphones, etc. Something that somehow is external to us. And I think that at this point, it's, it's, that's a slightly naive way of looking at it, particularly because it tends to present us as somehow being the passive recipients of technology or the passive victims. And I use the word advisedly of technological progress, again, a term I use advisedly. By the end of The Bright Labyrinth, I'm arguing for a much more dynamic relationship, something that's actually in a, in a constant state of flux, that we are, as if you like, almost in conflict with technology. We don't just influence technology. Technology influences us at the same time. And this relationship is so close, so intricate, so intimate, Mm -hmm. that I feel justified in saying we are the technology. I think at some point in the book I say that you know the nearest I get to a definition of technology that works for me is when I say technology is the embodiment of power relationships. And that's about as far as I'm prepared to go in terms of it being something identifiable from us. But I think that you know the, the way in which we present technology as being, you know, Edison invents the phonograph and then there's the then there's the kinematograph and bloody bloody blah he goes on like this, as if somehow they, they you know they just assemble themselves from bits and pieces. But the actual assembling process itself is what interests me. That's, I think, where technology and culture begin to impact each other Mm -hmm. and influence each other to the point where it's almost impossible to prise them apart. Well, that brings us on nicely. Edison is someone who crops up throughout the book, and he's going to in a moment, no doubt, because I want to talk about, first of all, there's a chapter which is called Towards a Sexual History of Machines, in which you look at the sort of, I guess, the post post post-steam age, post-industrial age development of machines and um, the sort of production line type machines going up to robots and how that parallels technologies like photography and early early film but first of all I wanted to talk about how it was also reflected in art you talk about some late 19th century ballet and dance that's influenced by mechanics it's not so much that that they're influenced but there's there's a kind of weird uh, simultaneity Mm -hmm. going on this is particularly in 1895 when uh, Marius Petipa in uh, St. Petersburg stages a new production of mm-hmm. Swan Lake to Tchaikovsky's music. And this is the version that we know today. You know, if you, go to the, if you go to the Royal Opera House and you see a Royal Ballet production of Swan Lake, you'll see pretty much Petipa's mm-hmm. choreography. And what I find interesting about this particular ballet is, is that he uses the corda ballet. So he has this, this sort of like phalanx of identically posed, identically dressed female dancers and there's about 24 of them and they form various kinds of geometric patterns on the stage but when they first enter and these are supposedly swans they make this entrance and they kind of snake down the apron of of the stage in a big sort of coiling line of dancers but they're all copying each other's gestures they're all repeating the same gestures over and over again so it's almost like the equivalent of a musical round where one starts a movement and the person after mm-hmm. starts a movement and then the person after that starts the movement. And because they're also crossing over the stage in front of each other in this snaking line, supposedly copying the, the flight of swans down onto the lake, you get this strange overlapping of body parts. And the effect is very similar to a zoetrope, mm-hmm. you know, this very early kind of animation device where repeated images that are just slightly different from each other become superimposed mm-hmm. to the point where it seems to be a repeated gesture. That in itself, I think, is very interesting, that the, this, this group of dancers who are being treated as one 
machine in a sense mm-hmm. that you know they are a piece of apparatus is being treated in this way at exactly the same time that the Lumiere brothers are showing their first films in Paris mm-hmm. same year and the first film in fact the first film they make and the first film that they show is uh, something called Sortie de l'usine uh, the exit from the factory and you can find this on on YouTube mm-hmm. it's, it's quite a famous clip it's not very long and essentially they've just set up their camera and they filmed the women workers in their light in their light bulb factory I think it is in Marseille coming out of the the work gates and I couldn't help but compare and contrast this tightly drilled line of dancers in in St. Petersburg with this sudden kind of chaotic outpouring Mm -hmm. of factory female factory workers and thinking well you know consider their social status consider their political status consider you know their right to vote or not I mean in both cases we're looking at assemblages of people that are designed to function as a kind of social machine you know whether they're producing a dance or whether they're producing light bulbs uh, is, is almost immaterial. Although we're not supposed to be talking about a history of technology as such, let's talk about the development of that, you know, the sort of production line, mm. that, you know, the idea of... Well, I want to get really to why you describe it as a sexual history of machines, really. <laughs> <laughs> because I was trying to reach for a degree of pleasure to be found in repeated gestures in groups... Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not alone in observing this. We can go back to Simenon, the, the mm-hmm. uh, historian of technology, where mm-hmm. he talks about the satisfaction that's generated by this kind of intermeshing of people with machines. And he talks about this kind of perfect transmission of energy mm-hmm. when all the parts of the machine are assembled correctly. And I just wanted to take that further, particularly when we get into the areas of robotics. If we go from if we go from the assembly line mm-hmm. as being this kind of carefully controlled choreography of humans and machines, to the extent that you know Henry Ford could boast that his assembly line could also incorporate X number of men with one arm, X number of men with one leg, X number of blind men, etc. You know that they're how can I put it? There, what they lack physically is made up for by the machine. Mm-hmm. That, that's how intimately packed they are. Or indeed, how the robotic arm, which developed in the 1950s, is actually designed to work within a human space. If we sort of push that into the areas of robotics itself, what I find really interesting is that quite often we have this misguided cultural idea that it is the man machine, you know, and that's the common term, Mm -hmm. the man machine. But quite often it's the female machine. Over and over again, it's the female machine. Uh, The first use of the word android wasn't actually android, it was android, which is the female ending of it, in in a book called uh, Le Futur, the, The Future Eve. Uh, it's a female machine. Mm-hmm. In Hoffman's tale, The Sandman, this classic Gothic tale, mm-hmm. Olympia is, you know, gift of the gods, Olympia. She is a simple mannequin who looks very lifelike, who's only capable of saying one thing, which is basically, ah, ah. And some romantic fop falls in love with her because he thinks that she understands him perfectly. So right from the very beginning, we, we have an identification of the machine, not with man, but with with women. There's Mm -hmm. there's an amazing quote from uh, Sartre written in the 1950s where he describes the activities of women working in a machine shop, you know, using sewing machines. And he talks about how the rhythmic motion of the machines corresponds to an erotic daydream. You know, that this is the moment when they recall 
erotic experiences is while they're working these the treadles of their sewing machines. And he actually says, you know, the woman is dreaming, but it is the machine within her who dreams mm-hmm. of the caresses. And I thought, well, this is this is really interesting that we're constantly sort of placing the machine and the woman together as being these kind of unknowing, unknowable things. And this this quite nicely brings us to the, probably the most you know the most obvious example of that in early cinema, which is Metropolis, Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Absolutely, I I, I find that film really fascinating because not only do we, again do we find even though they talk about the man machine mm-hmm. in the in the actual dialogue and in in Theo von Arbu's novel, it's referred to as the man machine. But it's not. It's a woman machine again, and it's and it's. And I think in the novel she's actually referred to as being deceptions. You know, this is this is fable. This is deception. This is an illusion. She can be whatever you want her to be. She is nothing. And in the both in the novel and in the film, the machine takes on the likeness of Maria, who is this kind of saintly, very spiritual female figure who's attempting to reconcile the the, the downtrodden workers with the uh, ruling caste who sort of inhabit the skies over Metropolis. You know, they're at the very top of the tower blocks while the actual kind of working hands of metropolis are right down in the basement she's trying to sort of create some kind of reconciliation in order to thwart you know this early attempt at labor relations she is kidnapped and the robot is put in her place but the robot is made up to look like maria so effectively if you've got two marias you've got good maria who's tied up and you've got evil maria who proceeds to do this incredibly wild erotic dance that drives people out of their minds and what's kind of interesting is that it does actually parallel the plot of in in a sort of slightly inverted way it actually parallels the plot of Swan Lake. In Swan Lake, we have a virtuous swan, and a prince falls in love with her. Just as in Metropolis, the the son of the, the ruler of Metropolis falls in love with the virtuous Maria, and he is up against in Metropolis. It's it's Rotwang, the inventor, the technician. He's almost an alchemist in the film. I mean, he's very blurred. He's part scientist, part wizard, really. And in Swan Lake, we have Rothbart, who is an evil magician who's turned these women into swans. Mm-hmm. In order to sort of, like, reclaim the good swan, Odette, as she's called, from the advances of this handsome young prince, he produces an evil black swan, Odile, who dances for him and drives him out of his mind so that he renounces Odette. The result is a very, very beautiful tragedy in which love and death and sex are all embraced in one, in one sort of climactic moment. In Metropolis, good wins out in the end, virtue, virtue triumphs, and um, as is always the case with strange mythological half-machine, half-women entities, she's burnt at the stake. <laughs> you know, she's burnt as a witch in Metropolis. But her dance is fascinating. Her dance actually sees almost like a breakdown of the kind of smooth ordering that we associate with technology. This is one of the things... Again, this is why it's the sexual history of machines. Mm-hmm. I'm actually looking at the fact that turntables, projectors cameras require very very smooth steady operations in order for this mm-hmm. this kind of perfect coupling to take place and what's interesting about maria's erotic dance is the way that fritz lang has edited it so that it becomes a series of jump cuts hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. ...and loops. Mm -hmm. So you don't get any sense of the kind of smooth continuity that you'd get, say, watching a a ballerina or or the corps de ballet on a standard stage Mm -hmm. where they're connected to the floor and all movement comes from that connection and there's a smoothness and a line to it and a gliding flow to it. Evil Maria's dance is all jerks and jumps and repeated gestures and flounces and poses that are struck Mm -hmm. for a second and then lost again. And it's almost as if Lang at this point almost wants the machine to break down. There's moments in Metropolis where you almost feel like the film itself is going to break. Mm-hmm. When uh, Maria's lover, the, the, you know, the handsome prince, as I'm going to call him for the moment, first sees evil Maria, she's in the arms of his father. You know, I mean, this is great Oedipal relationship. And, you know, as any good handsome prince in a, in a silent movie would do, he instantly goes insane and, you know, just has this complete mental breakdown. And this is identical, this is illustrated by actual lines scratched into the emulsion. So you get these huge explosions of light, mm-hmm. but they're actually produced by sort of completely removing the emulsion from the negative so you it is literally light coming out of the screen at these points so it's almost like as if his madness has broken through the film itself at this particular point i'm alex kratoski and this is little adams a radio show about ideas and culture well, staying with the imagery of, well, certainly the upstairs mm. metropolis, not mm. the sort of proletariat bit below ground, but those sort of, the images of sort of big art deco skyscrapers and towers. In a different chapter, The Dream of Venus, the chapter is called, mm. you sort of paint this picture using the um, the myth of Atlantis, but also early sci-fi, so the Jules Verne, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and H.G. Wells, and to sort of look at the idea of, of how that imagery has affected the sort of industrial age and particularly, I guess, more things like, you know, you talk about world fairs and Crystal Palace and and that sort of thing. But I just wanted to look at those. It's a more, you know, the sort of Art Nouveau and it seems like a more hopeful way. And it reminded me, I meant, haven't said this already, but I meant to say the um, the blurb on the back of this book begins, reality is now a video game that runs itself. And you don't you don't mention this in the book, but any listeners, listeners that are into their video games, if they imagine the video game Bioshock, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, mm-hmm. but it is exactly the image that you're painting in this chapter. This sort of undersea Art Nouveau, Randian sort of fantasy world that is built, and that, that, those ideas just scream out of this chapter. I think because there's a, there is a kind of fundamental myth at work, and and it's a myth that I first approached in well, my previous book, Welcome to. Mm-hmm. Mars. And it is the notion of not so much Atlantis, its existence, but its end, the destruction of Atlantis. The, the you know the myth runs that it, you know the, this is a a culture, a civilization of advanced technology, um, of science, of wisdom that is suddenly obliterated in a single night. So we've gone from a kind of millennial, you know, utopian society to complete oblivion. We're almost reversing Buckminster Fuller's 
uh, options of you know utopia or oblivion. It goes from it goes from one to the other, and it was such a potent myth, I think, for the industrial age. It kind of hangs over it. I think there was an insane number of books written about Atlantis mm-hmm. as we get towards the end of the 19th century. It was, it was, it was obsessive. I mean, Jules Verne mentions Atlantis in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. You could still get money, uh, grants to have expeditions in search of Atlantis. Uh, I think the British government even financed one at one point. So you've got this kind of mythological, almost kitsch-like mythology mm-hmm. of this of this drowned world, this world that's just completely wiped off the map. It has no location whatsoever. In other words, it can become anything. So you have this one myth that's hanging over progress, this mm-hmm. notion of, of creating this advanced age of running water and steam engines and electricity and, and material comfort and wealth. It kind of hangs out right the way through into the 1930s. You know, in the 1930s, someone actually wrote a book uh, with, with, the, with the rise of the Nazis called Is Europe the New Atlantis? So it was a very, very powerful myth in terms of understanding progress, which of course in turn leads me to the notion that progress itself is a myth that we've actually bought into, and certainly very heavily in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons, you know, earlier in in our conversation I talked about the idea of us tiptoeing into the 21st Mm -hmm. century, I think it's because we've sort of begun to realise that the way in which our concept of progress has, has sort of, as it were, shaped our thinking to the extent that, and it seems impossible now to, to, to replicate it, but if one thinks of the 1940s, the 1950s, the 1960s, etc., etc., each decade that I name, I would guarantee that most people would have a very specific almost mm-hmm. mental image of dress, codes, customs, politics, etc. It seems to me insane that we're able to take a 10-year period mm-hmm. and, and use that 10-year period to categorise something to the extent that it is different from what went before or what went after. And it becomes, it sort of gains its sort of apogee in the 1960s. It's almost like the 1960s define everything else. Mm-hmm. You know, I think somewhere I say the best thing to come out of the 1960s was the 1950s in terms of it being a separate decade that could be understood. But it, it may be that we're just too too near where we are now, but that seems to very definitely stop in the 1980s. Absolutely. So the 1990s is not identifiable, but the 2000s, even less so. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, what's interesting is in the 1990s, they started to talk about it as being the new 1960s. Mm-hmm. You know, because, hey, look, we've got a whole load of new drugs, there's new kind of dance music, there's new kind of, you know, electronic psychedelia going on. It's almost like, oh, we're getting another chance at the 60s, let's not mess it up this time. You know, because the 60s are just the 90s upside down. But if we said, oh, we're going to have a 1990s party, you've all got to come dressed up, everybody would be all at sea, really. Do you know what I mean? I think you could, you could probably make an effort but as you said you know you could dress for this is such a trite way of looking at it but you could dress for an 80s or a 60s or a 70s party you know with your eyes closed i think you'd be surprised there's a lot of kids at the moment who are actually looking at 90s music and 90s dress and going back to things like daniel pool and Mm. the dog etc the baggy look etc um so i wouldn't completely rule out the the, i mean that's the one i would think of sure (laughs) sure but i I think that it's it's not you know it's not so much that we're naming specific decades that we're familiar with but it's this concept of actually being able to parcel out mm-hmm. development progress uh, as, if, as if it's some kind of ecre- incremental staircase that we climb up. We get to we get to 2000, and you're right, we're absolutely lost because that way of organising time has disappeared. So imagine the weight at the early part of the 20th century when, that, when this idea of a new age is emerging. You start to look at apocalyptic images like... Atlantis, mm-hmm. in the same way that as we progress through the century, we begin to start looking at Mars in a different way. And sort of, for me, Mars and Atlantis are similarly placed. They're both industrial age myths. 
Well, I was going to say there's a, a book I, I, I had no idea of the existence of before reading your book, but the, this chapter starts with an apocalyptic image from a book, which is, I'm not even sure if I've got the title right, but basically about Edison going to Mars to fight back the Martians. Presumably it's somehow after H.G. Wells is the war oh, yeah. of the worlds. It's, it's really a fascinating story, and I'm actually, I'm actually indebted to Brian Aldis for, for sketching this one out for me. When Wells wrote The War of the Worlds which I think is one of the greatest London novels ever written, let's be clear. I mean, this, this is the most amazing vision of London in this, in this novel, and Wells knew his London well. Mm-hmm. And this would happen quite often in the, in the late 19th century, that books would get very, very quickly pirated overseas because they were difficult to keep track of. <laughs> and up until very, very recently, a lot of publishing procedures were still geared towards preserving the copyright uh, and originality of, of books published in the UK. Mm-hmm. In America, so Wells's book gets pirated, but the Americans don't actually like the ending. They don't think it's a strong enough ending that it's just microbes that kills off the Martians. So they first of all, there's there is actually a book called I think it's called something like The War of the Worlds Outside Boston or something like that, which is a kind of rewrite of War of the Worlds set in America, in which Yankee know-how finally mm-hmm. defeats the Martians and sends them packing. And it was really, really successful, very, very popular, very successful. And it was it was published by a, a Boston newspaper who then hired this astronomer whose name escapes me for them. And he was a science correspondent. Science correspondents have got a lot to answer for in the past, who is commissioned to write a sequel which is called Thomas Edison Conquers the Martians. And in this, in this novel, which you can find online very easily, mm-hmm. Edison actually creates all these amazing electric weapons that are going to be used on a, and, and electric flying ships that are going to take the weapons to Mars, where they're going to sort of obliterate the Martian race. And interestingly enough, they stop off on the moon on the way, where they discover, well, wouldn't you know, the lost descendants of Atlantis. <laughs> <laughs> it all fits. Yeah, it do. <laughs> This is Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to Ken Hollings, and we're talking about his book, The Bright Labyrinth, Sex, Death and Design in the Digital Regime. And we just finished that last part looking at, I guess, apocalyptic science fiction from the... um, from the early 20th century. And I want to sort of carry on in that vein because there's a, there's a chapter called Godzilla Has Left the Building in this book. And obviously we'll, we'll sort of get on to the um, the wider appeal of the figure of Godzilla himself. But well, there's more generally, first of all, Ken, this idea of the disaster movie. It's, it's always been massively appealing. What is it? Why is it? Oh, dear. Um, that's a very complicated question. First of all, I think we're on one fundamental level, we're, we're fascinated by 
what Susan Sontag called the imagination of disaster. In other words, we like we like to see things going out of control. We like to see things getting out of hand. Uh, but we also like some kind of balancing body to come in at the end. You know, if science creates the problem at the beginning, science has got a solution at the end. I think that's a slightly simplistic reading of, of the disaster film, particularly as it applies to science mm-hmm. fiction. But I think that beneath it, there's a much deeper myth, which I find really fascinating in historical terms. And, and this is the relationship between cinema and destruction itself. Not, and I'm paraphrasing the, the German director, Hans-Jürgen Sieberberg, not the disaster film, but film as a disaster. Mm-hmm. I think somewhere... The, the underground filmmaker uh, Kenneth Anger once said the invention of the motion picture was a dark day for mankind. So for me, there's always been this kind of shadow over cinema itself. And I found it very interesting that there was a very, very big fire took place in Paris. At the end of the 19th century, it was, there was a char- they would have They had this annual charity bazaar in which the quite prominent figures in society and rich people would, would, would attend this bazaar. It was, it was to raise funds for the poor. And this particular year, the theme was the old Paris, in other words, the Paris that had been removed mm-hmm. when the, you know, the new, new boulevards were put in and the new buildings had been created. Like Godzilla Baron Houseman. Yes, exactly, the original Godzilla <laughs> Houseman himself. So it's, it's a memory of this medieval Paris, the, mm-hmm. the, the labyrinthine Paris, if you will, of dark passageways and alleyways. And so it's all created out of cardboard and wood and painted canvas. So it's already a movie set, effectively, for these people to walk around. And one of the attractions of the day is going to be a Lumiere Brothers film show. And they've got this particular projector, I can't remember the make or model now, and it basically, in order to generate enough light for it to work, it needed huge amounts of magnesium, oxygen and ether. And the projection has knocked the projector over, which sets everything alight. I mean, it's awful, you know, scores of people died. Mainly in, women in, and children. Mainly it? women and children. And in, in fact, I, I read somewhere that there was a, there was a, a, an account, uh, I think in one of Roger Shattuck's books about the about the late nineteenth century, where he said that there was an awful lot of embarrassed women who should have been at the bazaar, who had actually been visiting their lovers that afternoon and had to sort of explain why they hadn't died in this in this huge conflagration. Oh, the French and their sense of humour. Um, but the other interesting thing about this fire was that some of the bodies were so badly damaged that it was the first time that dental records were ever used to identify bodies. So it, it seemed to me that in our own century, in our own mm-hmm. new millennium, we've already had an experience where the identification of bodies in a huge conflagration, a huge act of destruction in, in, in New York in 2001, has still left bodies unaccounted for. You know, we don't know how many kind of workers without permits or without uh, passports or identity mm-hmm. were also lost in that particular disaster. So there's something about the disastrous spectacle which haunts us. And in a way, the cinema is a kind of ghostly reflection of it. Uh, I mean, you know, it's almost impossible, I think, to, to watch movies without New York or, or a similar city being pummeled to rubble. Well, weirdly as well, like post 9-11, it seems like every other film has New York or another major American town being destroyed. Mm. This seems like a, a, a interesting way to try and come to terms with that giant disaster. Or is it? Is it? I mean, I think in, in terms of Freudian analysis, when you say that you know the, the thing about a trauma is that you keep repeating mm-hmm. it, and you can't you can't get out of the cycle of it. So I think we're probably stuck with this particular scenario mm-hmm. for quite some time. But it's the way in which it's used more and more as a kind of metaphor or a, a, a correlative for realism. You know, that it, in a sense, this is digital technology showing itself off 
because, hey, look, we can make the whole of Grand Central Station mm -hmm. blow up. But what's interesting is that there's also a, a lack of willingness, I think, or the, to, to suspend disbelief. You know, things have now become so realistic to the extent that you can actually get, you know, actual lens flare digitally programmed into your sequence so it looks a little bit shakier and more mm -hmm. handmade than it actually is i think that's at this point there's there's nothing for the audience to grab hold of anymore mm -hmm. it doesn't surprise me that movies have actually got louder as well almost to compensate for that or that we also have this interesting subgenre of the found footage movie where its authenticity is signaled by shaky camera work bad sound incoherent events happening just outside the frame that you can't quite make out so at the moment i I think we're in a period of transition. I mean, I don't think this has worked itself out at all, but I'd be curious to see where it ends up. I mean, in a sense, I feel one of the reasons... The, the chapter actually has a subtitle. It's called Godzilla has left the building and how he got there. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of interested in, in the actual conventions that make something believable in audiovisual terms. What for example, there's always been this slight difference between East and West over how you accept Godzilla. You know, mm -hmm. Godzilla has always cast two shadows. He's Godzilla in the West and he's Gojira in the East. But also a set of conventions, all centred around the notion that Godzilla is a man in a rubber suit, has sprung up, which makes that scene, that spectacle, acceptable. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's, it's like looking at the ballet again, you know, and seeing these dancers as swans in the same way the guy in the rubber suit is Godzilla. You, if you accept that, you have an interesting time. And I, you know, the first Godzilla, which is the only one I write about, is the very first mm -hmm. Godzilla film, because he's... You know, he almost deserves a book of him to himself. There are just so many incarnations of this of this particular monster. Uh, I only deal with the original mm -hmm. uh, Godzilla in this film because that he that is where he is purely identified with disaster and with the you know the the the, the tragedy of war and the tragedy of destruction. And also, he only comes out at night in that particular film. Uh, which I think is very interesting, the darkness of the cinema. He only comes out in the darkness of the cinema. He's not seen in the film for quite a long time. I think it's almost like a third of the way mm -hmm. in before he actually appears. But you actually hear him right at the very beginning. You actually hear him pounding on the walls of the cinema. And there is a moment, this is, I, I find this insanely beautiful. There is a moment, if you imagine watching this film in 1954 in December, there is a scene where Godzilla has a rampage through Tokyo at night. And in one particular sequence, you actually see him putting his foot through the cinema where the film originally premiered. So, God, I would have loved to have been in the audience for that screening, actually watching the cinema that I'm sitting in being crushed by Godzilla while I'm watching him crushing the cinema. That's what I mean by, you know, cinema as disaster. Mm. There's a... Staying with the sort of idea of urban ruin and massive urban ruination, there's a little sort of sideways excursion in this chapter into um, a tour of Chernobyl as well. Let's talk about this idea of that sort of appeal of just almost ancient ruins. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's almost this idea of, uh, you know, of, of that sort of destruction as, a, as, a, as, as an ancient monument. I think it's more than just an ancient monument. It's a theme park. Mm. And this I find particularly interesting. We were talking earlier about the idea of the, of the, of the trade fairs and the yeah. world fairs and Crystal Palace, etc. This idea that we sort of put our technology on show, that somehow it, it tames it slightly to, to sort of put it in a glass case, as it were, or to sort of see it through the kind of aesthetic lens. Even if it's exploded, and yeah. it's now in a big concrete case. Exactly, exactly. And in fact, the, the, the notion of, of Chernobyl as this kind of theme park of the future, uh, in fact, you have to swap buses as well because some of the buses are so heavily contaminated they don't leave the area mm -hmm. so you actually have to sort of like you know you're route into this into this place is very carefully 
uh, worked through. And I, I sort of got very interested in all these kind of abandoned theme parks, particularly the ones that are springing up in China and Mongolia, mm-hmm. where I think there's like a dinosaur fairyland in Mongolia, which is which is designed to look like the Hollywood the Hollywood Hills, uh, and they have this kind of weird blend of sort of dinosaur skeletons and totally fictitious fantasy creatures that I don't think anybody goes to. You know, because it's also got an army test range running through it, and there's an army track with trucks and and and, and jeeps going up and down it as well. Um, and there's quite a few in, uh, there's quite a few interesting theme parks in China which have just been shut down, where the the, the farmers have sort of reclaimed this ground. Uh, you can watch some very interesting sort of video guides to these sites on on um, YouTube. And it led me to, and I think this is very much a sort of online phenomenon. I find a really fascinating one is this is this kind of online obsession with decay mm. um, you know so it's possible you know so, you know there's, there's a lot of sort of dead shopping mall sites where you can look at unused malls and, and the kind of condition they're now in you know people that do urbex kind of mm-hmm. photography in these spaces the theaters of Detroit all these beautiful late 19th century theaters that now look like underground caverns with practically stalactites coming out of the ceiling and you know there's the seats just sprouting moss mm-hmm. and ferns and there's something very beguiling about looking at these things online you know, I found myself flicking through whole sequences of mm-hmm. images, and it seems a very kind of twenty-first century pastime. But very much in, the, in that context, as I said, it's about it's almost like they're Aztec pyramids or something. Mm. You know, what I mean, there are these things that are not just you know, there's urban decay in every city that we live in, but it's always presented in this sort of like this is a beautiful, you know, a beautiful site, well lit and, and beautifully photographed as well. Which I find it's an interesting thing. I mean, many years ago, I wrote a, one of my first attempts to write about Godzilla. I wrote a piece called Tokyo Must Be Destroyed, which dealt with. How we were talking, you know, you're talking about the idea of, you know, re- Godzilla rebuilding Paris, as it were. Um, we have Baron Haussmann as the Godzilla of Paris, sort of creating ruins and then rebuilding a Paris out of it. In the same way, Godzilla is is constantly rebuilding Tokyo. He knocks it down so they can build it again, and it gets bigger and bigger. There was a moment when they brought him back, brought Godzilla back in the 1980s, when they actually had to make Godzilla taller because the buildings in Tokyo had got correspondingly taller over the years, and they. They, they suddenly realised they were in the embarrassing position where Godzilla would have been towering underneath these structures. And in this essay, I got really... Uh, one of the sort of opening images was... I'd read this account of uh, Cecil B. DeMille filming the Ten Commandments in the California desert, and they built this enormous set with sort of plaster sphinxes and pyramids and temples, and it was the, the city of the pharaohs. And... It was after the filming, it was just left there to sort of decay and rot. And of course, the desert kind of reclaimed it. The dunes kind of swept over it. And in Cecil B. DeMille's memoirs, he says, you know, one day perhaps archaeologists will come across this city of the pharaohs and wonder, you know, how the ancient Egyptians ended up in in California. And I'm saying, yeah, of course, you know, with their passion for nails, two by four boards and plaster of Paris, of course they were. Interestingly enough, just in uh, last October, a team of archaeologists are now digging up the city of the pharaohs and they're treating it with the same care that, that I would imagine late 19th century explorers would have treated the Valley of the Kings. So it's, it is a genuine archaeological expedition to find this completely fictitious, fake city of the pharaohs buried in the California desert. <laughs> They've already found a sphinx's head, so you know they're on the right track. <laughs> I'm Andy Miller, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. 
Okay, so we're we're running out of time, but I don't want us to finish without a mention of uh, somebody you've alluded to a few times, Marshall McLuhan, who's I think people are probably more famous now for his Annie Hall cameo than for any of his uh, any of his theories. Even if people probably do know things like the medium is the message, they don't necessarily know what it means. And there's this this fantastic idea in this book that you know if you if you attempt to study him, <laughs> then you've almost inevitably got him wrong. Yes, he is a. He's a difficult figure, and in fact, I think his, his difficulty actually makes him so valuable for us today. And I think really there has been, in the last 10 years, 15 years even, a kind of reappraisal of McLuhan that's, that's still continuing. Well, I'll just say, I mean, it seems at a distance to, on the one hand, in a, in a, in a sort of glib way, a sort of pop philosopher in the way that Andy Warhol is like mm. a sort of, you know, a pop artist. He, he seems like, you know, not a fraud exactly, but somehow, like in terms of, you know, the idea of the, you know, the medium is the message sums up everything about him. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like there's no content. I think it's because you have to supply the content. Mm. He was not. I don't think he was a great writer. He was a fantastic aphorist. I think he was terrific at, at, at summing up an idea in a phrase that has a kind of surface allure to it. So, as you say, the medium is the message becomes this this kind of mantra. Mm. It's um, like a thing on a T-shirt. Yeah, yeah. but it, you actually have to spend some time thinking about what exactly it means. The best example I can give you of, I think, of the way in which McLuhan uses an aphorism extremely well is the one where he says, "We view the present." Through a rear-view mirror, we march together backwards into the future. I mean, it's full of paradoxes and reversals, but if you actually pick it apart, he says we view, you know, we view the fu- we view the present through a rear-view mirror. So he's he's already talking about cars, motorways. You know, if you're viewing something in a rear-view mirror, it it can be sort of a, on a long straight stretch. I don't think he's talking about little curvy, curly English country lanes. He's talking about highways, mm-hmm. motorways, etc. So we're you can actually see what's coming up behind you in the rear-view mirror. So that's the first part of the metaphor. Then he says, we march together backwards into the future. So the metaphor itself has gone back in time. We've gone from cars to marching. Who marched on straight roads? The Romans, the legions, the people that brought civilization to Europe, you know, the roads that were, you know, praised for their beauty when they were first created by Gaius Gracchus, but which were also understood as being a very powerful political and military tool for the domination of Europe. But, you know, in, in a typical McLuhan twist yet again, we're marching backwards, you know, so our brave legions are actually going backwards into the future. And so, I mean, there's so much you can do with that, with that set of images, that set of metaphors, to get at some kind of new meaning, which he's not immediately giving mm-hmm. up. He is paradoxical. I think, he can, I think his attempts to categorise experiences into hot and cold or media into hot and cold, forget it, don't go near it, it never works. I've never been able to make it pan out. But for insights, for little moments of illumination... I think he's really useful for today. I think he's some of his some of his precepts are usable today. Well, I was going to I didn't want to sound like I was dismissing him because I was going to come on to that, you know, the idea that in in a, in a world of, you know, the internet and social media and mm. sort of interaction, he seems more relevant, I think. I think he do, he would be I think he would have interesting things to say about the internet. Oh, absolutely. In fact, the the, the, the chapter which deals not just with McLuhan, but also Herbert Marcuse. Yeah. They both had very key books out at the same time. McLuhan's was Understanding Media and Marcuse's is One Dimensional Man. They both came out in 1964. <laughs> and over the course of the chapter, I begin to sort of see the political theorist in McLuhan and the, and the sort of media theorist in 
Marcuse coming out of these two books. But I actually start the section with this... Uh, I love this particular incident where uh, Wired magazine hadn't been going for very long. And they always... You know, they, the actual look and feel of Wired was based on this remarkable book, which is still in print, called The Medium is the Massage, which McLuhan did with Quentin Fury, which is a, one of the best sort of graphic text amalgams I've ever seen. It's quite an extraordinary thing. If you want to get to the heart of McLuhan in an afternoon, read The Medium is the Massage. It's all in there. So the actual lookout, the, look, the layout and look and feel of early Wired was inspired by The Medium is the Massage. And they did a special McLuhan issue. Uh, this was in about 96, I think, somewhere around about then. And they included a, a Q&A with McLuhan. And he's fantastic. He's got really interesting things to say about cyberpunk and about inefficiency at work and how the product promotes the consumer and it's amazing and then you realise actually no he's been dead for 16 years <laughs> and you know this whole interview supposedly taken place uh, you know via email and, and message boards in the US and, and uh, at the end of it they say well we're, we're still not sure whether it's someone who's just a very very good McLuhan impersonator or whether it was just a very sophisticated chatbot that was able to just sort of bring out these McLuhanisms and it's just the perfect metaphor for him you know this kind of disembodied voice you know the future is back and this time it's personal but I think he stands a better chance of being understood this time around than he was in the 60s I think he was accepted to the extent that he was misunderstood and to misunderstand McLuhan was to understand him well in the 60s. <laughs> I think that's great. That's so perfect, especially, as I said, for the, uh, the age of social media. I've been talking to Ken Hollins. We've been talking about his book, The Bright Labyrinth, Sex, Death and Design in the Digital Regime, which is out now from the, the fantastic Strange Attractor Press. So, Ken, it's been a joy talking to you about it. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.